I want to introduce you to Noah. I think we have a picture. There he is. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it took a lot of effort to be able to like do that, you know, but no, nah, I'm just kidding. We went to like a professional photographer. One of Jenny's friends is like artistic photographer types who does a lot of baby pictures. And so that was like when he was like a week and a half. So and, and in case you can't tell, like that's my wife's hand and this is my hand over there. No. Thank you. I just wanted to show off my third child. That's all. Thank you, Nate. Yep. So I'm still a little bit sleep deprived. So you'll have to excuse me if I fumble over my words and so on and so forth. Okay. I'm, but I'm not going to complain because my wife, well, what she has to go through, man, she is, she's a saint and an angel. So a um, couple of things I want to say. Thank you, Thaddeus. A couple of things I want to say before we jump into our sermon series. And you're going to hear this over and over again throughout this fall. I'm going to be constantly challenging you. If you are not involved in a community group or a small group or a group of people that you're doing life with to do so. The Christian life is a personal thing, but it is never, ever, never, ever an individual thing. The Christian life is a personal endeavor, but never, ever, never, ever an individual thing. If you do not have a group of people that you are doing life with on a weekly basis, this may sound a little harsh, but I'm going to say it. You are not doing the Christian life. That's not my opinion. It's what Scripture says. So if the sum total of your Christian life as a new community attender is that you come on a Sunday, enjoy worship, you go home, you read your Bible once in a while and pray, that is not the picture of the Christian life. And this isn't just for you. It's about you. It's about us living out this mission of God. The only way that a non-Christian or someone who's interested in Christianity can see what the Christian life is about is not just hearing the gospel proclaimed, but seeing it lived out in your life as you do life with each other. How do they experience unconditional love if they can't see it between people? How do they experience and know about forgiveness and reconciliation if they can't see it lived out in a group of people? And the other thing you're going to hear over and over again is me challenging you guys to live out your life for the cause of Jesus. Have you guys noticed our lives get really small when we just live for ourselves? I mean, really. I've never, I've never met somebody, okay? I've never met somebody who was completely self-centered and selfish and lived for themselves that was truly happy. Never. I've never yet met somebody, if they're really honest, who was completely self-centered, selfish, and lived for themselves that said, you know what, I've, life is good. But I've met lots of people who even in difficult circumstances lived out for something greater than them. It's experiencing life as God intended you're going to hear this over and over and over again. I have very little interest, church, very little interest in having lots of people come on a Sunday, hear people preach, worship, and go home. Do you know that your age group, I, I'm sorry, let me specify, the age group of like 18 to 27-year-olds, okay? Because there's some of y'all going, my age group? There is a mass exodus of people in that age group that are just leaving the church in droves and they're saying, I'm bored with church and church is irrelevant. I can't blame them. I can't blame them. I can't blame them. Because if you are not challenged to the core that you're not God, if you are not challenged to the core that you are, I am, by nature, selfish and self-centered, and if you are not challenged to the core that the life that we live for ourselves is not the end-all and be-all, you're going to be bored with church. And I don't want you to be bored. I'd rather have you be offended than be bored. Let's open our Bibles. To Jonah. All right. Yeah. You know, this is going to be a long sermon series, I can tell. <laughs> oh, man, I was preparing for this sermon. I'm like, oh, Lord, this is going to be a long sermon series. It's only four chapters, but it's going to go a while. And some of y'all that like, like, you know, 
kind of quick, you know, let's get through the book types, you're not going to enjoy this. But if, if you are one of those folks that's like, no, let's really dig in, man, because I think I know the story of Jonah, but I think maybe not, um, you, you'll enjoy it. Anyway, so I'm wasting enough time. Let's, let's just jump in right here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read all of chapter one, because chapter one kind of sets the stage for the rest of the book. And, uh, and uh, we're probably going to spend three weeks on chapter one, just, just FYI. Okay, here we go. Jonah chapter one. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great, everybody say the word, Gadol. Say it again, Gadol. That's Hebrew for great. And you're going to see that word over and over again, Gadol. Great, great, great. That is, that is a constant theme, okay? Gadol. And, and of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea and light to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what pe- from what people are you? And his answer, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up. And throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will be calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, And threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. You can't preach that in one sermon. You know what I mean? You can't. You can't. So anyway, okay. So let me just make some general comments about the, the entire book, and, uh, and we'll dig into like first four verses, okay? Number one, this book, and this actually happens to be our sermon series, this book is essentially about three things. It's about our sin, it's about God's grace, and God's mission. Everybody say this with me. Our sin, God's grace, God's mission. I want to tell you that everything that ails us, everything that ails us personally, individually, and societally is because of these three things. Our tendency to ignore God is because we don't understand the depths of our sin, depths of God's grace, and depths of God's mission. Our tendency to uh, live life in our own way is because of our tendency to ignore our sin or downplay our sin, downplay God's grace, and downplay God's mission. Our tendency to misunderstand God. Hello? You might not be a Christian here this morning. Our tendency to misunderstand who God is, this Christian God that we claim to worship, is because of our not understanding the level of depth of our sin, God's grace, and God's mission. Those three things are at the center, at the core of what this entire book is about. Now, here's the thing. If I asked a typical person out there, do you know what our sin is? You'd be like, yeah, I kind of know that. We kind of know what these words mean, but do they really know? Do we really know what these words mean? The entire sermon series is intended to go deep into what the meaning of these three words are. Our sin, God's grace, God's mission. First thing, that's what this scenario book is about, and we'll uh, continue to uncover that. Secondly, the book of Jonah is one of the best presentations of the gospel in the entire Bible. When you think about our sin, God's grace, and God's mission, those three things in its entirety make up the essence of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. 
So as we're going to continue to discover, the gospel is this multifaceted, beautiful jewel that, that the light hits at different angles and we're looking at it and going, wow, that's great. Wow, that's beautiful. But there's multiple facets to what the gospel is. In order to understand the depths of what the gospel is, as Jonah will explain to us this book, we're going to see that even though we're great sinners, that our God is a great Savior. Even though our capacity to sin is great, God's capacity to forgive and rescue sinners is even greater. We're going to see in this book that God pursues, and here's the title for today, fugitives, rebellious fugitives like us, not to strip away our freedom, not to strip away our freedom and anger, but in his love, strip away our slavery so that we could truly be free. This book is about a God who relentlessly will pursue men and women created in his image out of his love, out of his love. Third, Jonah is the only prophetic book in the entire Bible that focuses on the prophet himself rather than his message. You think about that? Read through the Old Testament. Most of the prophetic books are about what the prophet said. The message of Jonah is Jonah's life. The message that God has for us is not necessarily what Jonah said, but it's his life. And what is the message of Jonah? This is a huge shocker. We're all like Jonah. The message of the entire book is that we're all like Jonah. We all run from God. Jonah's story is our story. Everyone in this room has at some point run from God or today are running from God. Here's kind of the big sort of sermon point that's going to overarch everything. Here it is. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. You could run from God, but you can't outrun God. So as I thought about this, I thought about various ways that I as a pastor have experienced people who have run from God. How many, to- how many of you guys, how many times have I heard this? Maybe some of you guys relate to this story. It's the whole, I went to church, grew up as a Christian, went to high school, was heavily involved. But then when I got to college and away from my parents and the Christian community, I did my thing. And it's been years and now I am, anybody? Is that your story? Anybody? One person? Okay. Or some of you actually is. I was heavily involved in high school, grew up, did the whole straight and narrow Christian thing in high school and in college as well. But man, as soon as I graduated college and got away from the confines of that tiny little Christian bubble and started working, started hanging out with my coworkers. And, uh... Anybody? One person. And it's the same guy, okay? He's the most honest person in this entire room, okay? It's the same person. Give me a break. Come on. Right? Let's all. Be. Maybe it's not a, 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 a general, but some of us is more specific, isn't it? Running from God. Some of us, it's more like we have areas in our lives where we will run from God. Anybody? Anybody? Relationship. There are certain areas of our lives where we basically made that prayer. Anybody pray this prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, no. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Anybody pray that prayer? And it's the same guy that raises his hand. No, I'm just kidding. We've all done that, right? It's like, God, I really like her. And it's easier for her to become a Christian than it is for her to become cute. So therefore, in this area, no. Oh, give me a break. Give me a break. Guys, give me a break. You've all heard me say this before. One of the ways that... I, 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 please don't make me go there. I, I'm not, let's just leave it at that. Career, marriage, whatever. We have areas in our lives where we say, God, in this area, I am leaving you in the rear view mirror. I got this, okay? And here's the thing, right? When I talk to people who run from God, everybody thinks their story is unique. Some of you are sitting here going, my story is unique. You have no idea. No, no, no. Pro- trust me. Every single one of us has this, con- has this in common. The reason why we run from God is because deep down inside, we don't trust God. Because deep down inside, here's what we say. We say, God's got his plan, his will for my life. And if I pursue that, my life is going to stink. If I pursue that, my life is going to go nowhere. So therefore, God, I know what you have planned for my life and what you will for me. But I don't trust you. I don't trust that you have my best interest. And so therefore, I'm going to run. Anybody? Anybody? Hey, one last thing. I'm running. And then there's some of you, and I've heard this story many times. 
For you, it was a terrible experience in church. Maybe it's because the church experience in terms of whether it was, it was something that was spiritually nourishing to you or whatever, or it was because they were very hurtful people. You've run from God, but here's what you did. You've kind of blended in your experience with that church, and you said, that's God. And so you running from that meant you had to run from God. So when you turned your back on the group of people who hurt you, group of people who made you doubt God, you kind of said, God... I'm done with them. I'm done with you too. And there have been periods in your life where you said, you know what, I want to, God, pursue. I need to seek. But then as soon as you do that, you think about the church, the upbringing, the pastors, the deacons, and you go, I, and you've, is that anybody's story here this morning? Yeah. For all of us that have run, and there are other ways that we run which we're going to cover, The phenomenal news of the story of Jonah, the gospel, is that even though we run from God, we cannot run God. Because we have a God who is just as quick, if not quicker, to run after us when we run. Not because, and you're going to hear this refrain over and over again. We think God is after us. Right? We think God is after. He's after me. He's punishment and wrath. God is not after you. God is after you. He's after you. To, not to punish, and to, but in his love to rescue you from yourself. From yourself. Fourth general point, and then we'll move on. People wonder, did this story really happen? Is this factual? Is it a parable? Is it an allegory? And there are a bunch of people, scholars, that have spent time on this wondering, come on, a man inside a fish for three days, give me a break. And I can stand up here and tell you all of what the scholars want to have said, but, but I'm going to spend like two minutes on this, okay? Here's why I believe it really happened. Jesus believed that it really happened. And I usually tend to go with the guy who, you know, raised himself from the dead in three days. You know what I'm saying? That's a good bet. Good bet. Let me show you why, where Jesus said that, 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 that he believed that the story of Jonah was real. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, real quick. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day, and this is what he says in this brief interchange. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was there three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. Two things. The influential Jews of Jesus' day said, Jesus, show us, you claim to be God, show us some indication that you are God. What's your sign? And Jesus says, sign of Jonah. Now, if Jonah's story was just a legend or fiction, it's kind of strange that Jesus would say, that thing right there is the sign that I am truly the Son of God. Secondly, why it's not a legend or a fiction. Jesus says, at some point, the men of Nineveh, in other words, the people that repented at the preaching of Jonah, this adulterous generation, you guys that will not listen to me, one day you will meet them. Now, would he say that if the people really aren't real? If it's just a matter of fiction, he says, they're real and you'll encounter them. One last thing, and I go with C.S. Lewis on this one. You don't write legends and myths like the book of Jonah, where the hero of the story is an absolute idiot. <laughs> comes across as a jerk, comes across as a racist. You don't write legends like that. But at the end of the day, I believe it happened because Jesus said that it happened. Okay, I go with him. Amen? All right. For those of you that go, oh, my, that's, that's not good enough for me. Well, we'll continue to talk about this book in the next few weeks. All right, let's dig in, guys, and let's go back to verse 1. Okay, let's dig into this book. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because it's wickedness that come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. Make a note here. Every time it says in the book of Jonah, he ran away from the Lord. Literally in Hebrew it says, he ran away from the face of the Lord. He ran away from the face of the Lord. And you'll see why that's important. And he headed for Tarshish. They went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Background information. Jonah is a, what is he? He's a prophet. And if you want to find where his story comes, 2 Kings chapter 14. Make a note of that. Jonah is a prophet. And he is serving in the, what was called the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay? The northern kingdom of Israel. Right around 750 B.C. 
Historical background and context is that Israel is doing quite well, actually, at the time. But their greatest uh, threat to their security and survival is this power, superpower called Assyria, of which the capital is Nineveh. And right away in this book, in the first two verses, we encounter the first of many surprises. Old Testament prophets, usually sent by God to preach, check this out, to God's people to repent or to preach against other nations. But this is the first time a God comes to a prophet and says, I want you to personally deliver this message to them. I want you to personally deliver this message of repentance to them. And this wasn't just a, 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 normid, no, a normal prophet's job description. Jonah's destination could hardly have been more imposing. Nineveh is the large, populous, well-fortified. Here's how large it is. The Bible says, we'll see in the book, it took three days to cover the city. It takes half a day to cover all of Chicago, 3.5 million people. Imagine a city, three days to cover this city. It's large, it's huge, it's imposing. Not only that, but as God says, it's a sin city. God even stresses it. Go to that wicked city, sin-filled city, violent. It's wicked, it's immoral, it's idolatrous, it's ungodly. Go to that city and preach against it. Go to the baddest, meanest, biggest, most powerful city in the world. Go to the center of it and tell everyone to repent and turn to God. Modern context. 750 B.C. Assyria is Iraq today. Nineveh is Baghdad. So imagine a Jew standing at the center of Baghdad proclaiming, repent and turn to the living God, Israel. It's what you would call a no-win situation. Either he is going to be made fun of or just absolutely despised and pushed out or worse, incarceration or death. But that is the mission that God gives to Jonah. Go to Nineveh. Quick application before we go on. How does it apply to us? I love war movies. Anybody else? Anything dealing with war military, I absolutely love. I don't know where that comes from, but I absolutely love it. And one of the things you notice about a good military, a good unit is whenever the soldiers are told to obey, they obey their commanding officer. Why? They trust the nature and character of their commanding officer. They say to themselves, he's wise, he's competent, he's good, he has led us to victory before, and they take refuge in that. Interesting enough, in the New Testament, did you know that Paul likens our relationship to God in one section as that of a soldier and a commanding officer? 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, In your hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Here's the point. God sometimes will come to you and to me and say, charge. God will come to you and me and say, here's your order. And you go, okay. You open it and you say, are you for real? You can't be serious. Can anybody relate? You want me to do what? And at that time, you and I have a choice. We could either look at the record and character of our commanding officer and we can say, he's good. He knows what he's doing. He's let us before. Or we can say, that sounds absolutely suicide and foolish. God, Heavenly Father, no. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody here gotten any orders from God lately where he said, you got to be kidding? Raise your hands. Just have, if you haven't, it's coming, it's inevitable. Every single one of us at some point in our lives gets an order or charge from God where he says, go. Abraham, do you remember Abraham? God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, charge, go. Leave everything you have that's comfortable, that's secure, everything that you know, your father, everything that is security to you and go. Where am I going? I'll tell you later. Where am I going? Go. And Abraham went. Why? He took confidence and refuge in the record and character God. In Genesis 17, powerful, Abraham says, and shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I love that. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham takes 
confidence and takes refuge in the nature and character of his God. Listen, when God comes to you and says, I need you to do something that's suicide, I need you to do something that just seems absolutely foolish, ridiculous, impossible, you could go your way, Jonah's way, and say, give me a boat. Give me on a boat in another direction. Or you can go Abram's way and say, God, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't even know how this is going to work out. But what I'm not going to do is disobey you. Charge. Yes, sir. How are you doing? Do you know why we struggle with this? I struggle with it. Because we ultimately don't trust in the record and character of our commanding officer. We don't believe that he's good. Really. You know where this comes from? Our first parents, Adam and Eve. Do you remember? Satan comes to him and says, why don't you all eat that tree? It looks really good. Adam and Eve's response, God told us not to eat of that tree because he loves us. And Satan says, he loves you. What's love got to do with it? He don't love you. He's trying to keep you down. He's trying to restrict you. He's trying to make sure that you don't enjoy life as you fully intended. And they believed him, and it sunk deep into their hearts. And you and I believe the same thing. God comes to us with these orders to love, to serve, to move, to do something that seems absolutely crazy. And when we say, God, am I going to ultimately what we are forced with is to listen to Satan's voice that says, he doesn't love you. You do that, your life is over. There are some of you who are stuck in the middle and waddling on the fence of radically following Jesus and living for this world, which is the most miserable place to be. You're straddling the fence because ultimately you have believed that if you utterly and totally give yourself entirely to God, your life is over. You believe that. If you give yourself utterly and totally to God in reckless abandon, there goes your life as you know it. And so you don't trust him. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. God comes and says, total abandon to me. I love you, and you have no idea what I've planned for you. And God says, charge. And we say, give me a boat in the other direction, will you? That doesn't make any sense to me. You could either take refuge in the character and record of God, or you could take refuge in your own feelings and your own wisdom. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Second point. Getting deeper into the book. Here's what we see in this book. The essence of sin is running from God. The essence of sin is running away from God. Do you know where Tarshish was? Tarshish is modern Spain. Modern Spain. So from where Jonah is, Okay, from where Jonah is, check this out. Nineveh, 500 miles east. 500 miles east. Not a short journey. Tarshish, 2,500 miles west. Okay? I'm telling you, is a big, clear, heavenly father? No. In Jesus' name, amen. God says, go 500 miles east to Nineveh. And Jonah says, get me the heck out of here and get on a boat where I can go 2,500 miles to the west, Tarshish. Come on, you all have done that before. But the important thing I want you to realize as we look closely at the Hebrew scriptures is this. Whenever it says in the book of Jonah that Jonah ran from the Lord, it literally says he was running from the face of the Lord. Get this, get this. Jonah is not running away spatially from God. He's running away relationally from God. What do I mean? You can't run spatially from somebody who's omnipresent. Can you? How do you run away from somebody who's everywhere? How'd you get here? I was here waiting for you. All right. How'd you get? You can't run from somebody who's everywhere. Psalmist says, where can I go? How can I hide from your presence? He is everywhere. When Jonah says he ran away from the Lord, it's not spatial presence. It's relational presence. Every time the Bible, matter of fact, get this, says face-to-face. Moses saw God face-to-face at the, at the top of Mount Sinai. Moses saw God face-to-face in the tabernacle. Whenever the Bible says someone saw face-to-face God, it's not spatially like God's face was right there. It's relationally. What do I mean? 
Whenever it says that God saw someone face to face, it means that God's presence came into the center of their being. And the center of their being was in the presence of God. When Moses runs from God, he's not running away from God literally, physically, spatially. He's running from God relationally and saying, God, we're done. And there's two ways that people run away from God. And every single one of us, I don't even to know your story, has fallen and run from God in one of these two ways. One of the ways that we run from God is more obvious. It's represented by the pagan sailors. They're immoral. They're wicked. They're idolaters. They're pagan. They're heathen. They're, people talk about in Romans chapter 1. They live to please their sensual desires, and they don't feel any guilt shame whatsoever. They live their lives as they want to. It's Luke 15, younger brother. Prostitutes, drugs, irreligious. I'm running. But the what of this story is the guy that's running. It's not the irreligious, immoral, secular, Luke chapter, you know, uh, younger brother. It's not the guy who is drugs, prostitutes. The guy who's running is who? Is a, it's a prophet. The guy who's running from God is that person well-dressed sitting in church on Sunday with their Bibles open. It's that person who's doing all the right things, going to small group Bible studies and serving God. The person that's running is the person who stands there, sings their songs every Sunday, and relationally, you could not be further from God. The runner in this story is the good Christian who wants to have nothing to do with God. The fugitive in this story is a prophet. Why? The essence of sin, and if you've come to New Community, you've heard this over and over again. It's not running from God relationally. It's, it's, it's running from God relationally. See, many of us, when we think of sin, and Christian or not, that's why some of you, when you hear the word sin, you're like, oh, sin, whatever. Because we think rules, right? Breaking commands or not breaking commands. But the essence of sin in the Bible, read your Bible, essence of sin is not just breaking rules. The essence of sin is a wrecked relationship and not just breaking rules. The essence of sin, go back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve decide, God, we could choose to be under your rule and reign and do your way, but we choose not to. We're going to come out from under your rule and reign and do this my way. The essence of sin is a wrecked relationship where we say to God, I'm going to be my own Lord. I'm going to be my own Savior. Essence of sin is not just a no to God. Essence of sin is a yes to ourselves as God. Essence of sin, church, Christians, listen to me. It's not just, well, I, violation of these rules. Essence of sin is saying to God, God, you may be creator, you may be Lord, but I'm going to do my own thing, okay? And I'm going to take charge of my own life and do it the way I want to do it. So let me talk to those of you, two different groups, just real quick. Some of you, you don't consider yourself a Christian. I'm glad that you're here and you agree. You sit there going, yeah, if you define sin as breaking God's commands, I don't even believe in God or if, it, if he is. I don't even believe in scriptures or Bible. So you go, you know what? To me, sin is not breaking those because I don't even believe in those things and whether we should do it or not. Here's what I would say to you. The seeking independence from God, this running from God, this saying to God, God, just leave me the heck alone ultimately leads to turning around and seeking salvation in something else. Every single one of us, the way human beings are wired, when we say, God, leave me the heck alone, we turn around and we find salvation in something else, our career, a marriage, a relationship. Because here's the irony about seeking independence from God is that whenever you try to get control over your life by running away from God, you wind up giving control of your life to someone else. Let me say that again. Whenever you try and get control of your life by saying, I want independence from God, inevitably, always, every time, you will wind up giving control over your life to someone or something else every time. Every time. Every time. 
What people think in our culture of freedom is an absolute illusion. God says there's no such thing as absolute freedom. He says, serve me. Have no other gods before me. Why? Because either you will serve me or you will serve some other God. There's no third option. You will adore something. You will place your hopes on something. You will find your identity in something significant, something. Something else will capture your imagination, your heart. Something else will control you and drive you. You guys have heard me say, use this example before. Grey's Anatomy, my wife and I watch this show a lot. Our favorite character is Christine O, because both of us can kind of relate to this very high-achieving, ambitious, cutthroat young lady. And there's one powerful scene where she's trying to move up this ladder as a cardiothoracic surgeon, right? And she's in this very critical thing. And she says, because she de- desperately wants a surgery, but, but someone's kind of blocking that. And in this heated argument, she looks at the person and says, I need this. This is my salvation. This is my thing. This is it for me. There's no such thing as complete freedom. You are either today worshiping God, surrendered to God, submitted to God, or you have given yourself to some other God. There's no in between. Everything that we think of as sin, when we lie, we steal, we trample on others, when we lust, envy, and otherwise disobey God is because we are trying to find salvation someplace else, trying to get our deepest needs met through other things besides God. The real problem in our lives, St. Augustine said, is not that we're breaking rules or keeping them. The real problem in our lives is inordinate love. Parents, or maybe you're a child, and this sounds like your parent. Parents, if you love your children more than anything else, more than anything else in the whole universe, more than God, you will control them. You will need to control them. If you love your children more than anything else, God, place them above, place them above the heights of who God is. You will need to control them. And when they fail, you will not just be discouraged. You will be devastated. You will want to live your life through them. And you'll ruin your kids. Because your soul can't sustain it. If you make that relationship, that career more important than God, you will experience what the Bible calls disintegration. You will experience anxiety. You will experience anger, envy, bitterness. You will experience these things because your soul isn't big enough for it. Inordinate love. Inordinate love. How about you? How are you doing? You may not even be a Christian here this morning. Maybe you are. You're saying to yourself, I worship the true God. Do you really? Do you really? Or are you running? Speaking of older brother types, let's get to you. Let's get to you. The real surprise in this story is who's running. Because despite his pedigree and his morality, it's the prophet of God. It's the godly man who's running from God. He's no better off than the sailors. Actually, he's worse. Do you notice? When they find out that he's the reason for the storm, what do they do? They try to do everything they can to save this guy. Jonah, what's he doing in the middle of the storm? He don't have a care in the world for their safety, for their livelihood. He don't have a care in the world for the hundreds some thousand Ninevites who may perish if not for the gospel. Jonah's morality, Jonah's religion has brought him no closer to God than the sailor's worldliness and false religion. Sin underneath everything else. Please hear this, child of God. Please hear this, Christian. Sin underneath everything else is not so much a desire or lack of desire to break rules or obey rules. Sin at the end of the day is a break in relationship where you say to God, God, I may be looking good on the outside and doing all these things, but ultimately at the end of the day, I am my own Lord. I am my own master. I am going to live my life the way I want to. You can't tell me how to live. I run this ship. And one of the ways that we try and control God, one of the ways that Christians try and control God is by being good. How, you say? If you don't understand it, you don't understand why Jesus constantly said to the pimps and prostitutes, they go to the kingdom before you all religious people. They go to the kingdom. They get into the kingdom before you all people. Why? Jesus is saying, you could actually, actually use your obedience for me as a way to stay away from me. You could actually use your morality and your goodness, actually, as a way to keep me out of your life. You're actually using your religion and your adherence to these laws as a way to keep me out. How do we do that? I can't tell you the number of times you'll see a Christian. They'll be going along for good for a while, and then something happens, and they just snap. Anybody seen that? 
Just snap. You're going, whoa, dude, like what, what, what happened? What happened? Or how many times do I hear somebody walk into my office and says this? They go, I tried Christian life. It doesn't work for me. You're saying that today, some of you. It doesn't work for me. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, I'm good. I've been good. I do all the right things. I follow the rules. I follow the laws. I'm spiritual. I do all the church. I serve God. And yet my life stinks. Let me be more specific. Pastor Peter, I was dating that guy and I broke up with him. Why? He wasn't a Christian, right? Hey, I had all the chances in the world to have sex with people, but I chose not to. I kept my sexual purity. And I'm single. I have nobody. How is that fair? And my question is, who did you do it for? Who did you do it for? For you? Or for God? Do you see how you and I use morality, religion, churchiness as a way to keep God at bay? And ultimately, it's life circumstances. Man, I was standing outside last week. And he's not here today. One of, our, one of my dear friends in this church, he and his wife had a miscarriage. He's going through a really, really hard time, really hard time. And it was just like two-minute conversation, but it was very poignant because he looks at me and he says this. He goes, it's times like this when our faith is tested, isn't it? It's times like this when we are brought to reminder, who do we really serve? It's times like this when we hear that voice inside of our head says, God doesn't love you. If he doesn't love you, if he loves you, would he have let that happen? Would he? It's times like that when we could either stand in faith and trust the record and character of our God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Or we take refuge in our own, our wisdom and our feelings and say, you know what? Give me a boat in the other direction. Can I just ask, how many of us in this room today are using our goodness, our morality, our religion as a way to run from God and say to God, stay out. I've paid my dues. Stay out. I do my deal. You're the older brother in Luke 15. I've obeyed you. I've been faithful to you. I've given you my all. And this? Are you angry? This morning, are you bitter? Are you envious? Are you jealous? When things happen, discouragement comes. But are you beyond just discouragement? Are you angry at God? Are you bitter at God? Because you could love the mission of Jesus and not love Jesus. You could do the right things and be physically home but not even know your heavenly father. You could be doing all the right things and saying to God, this isn't fair. You don't know what you're doing. I don't know. Am I preaching to myself this morning? Wow. Do you see why the story of Jonah is our story? He is the epitome of religious goodness, and he is so far from God. See, here's how I know. If some of y'all sitting there today, and you're just, you're just angry at me right now. You're just sitting there going, I'd walk out right now if I wasn't such a coward. Please, brother or sister, please, child of God, you can't keep running. You can't continue to run because somebody calls out the idolatry of your heart and your idolatry is Christianity, not Christ. Let's wrap this thing up because I promised you all that I'm going to preach a little shorter this fall. You know, Sven, you don't need to be so excited. You know what I'm saying, dude? Everybody out there feels the same way, but they keep their mouth shut. Why you ought to be like, oh <laughs> Goodness gracious, man. I might like just force you to like stay for like part two while everybody else goes home. It's like detention or something. Guys, what do we do? 
How do, we, how do we discover God if you've never discovered? How do we come back to him? Here it is, point number three. Will you admit that you're a fugitive? Can I talk to the men for a second? Come on now. Anybody else like me? Before the whole onset of GPS, I never asked for directions. Anybody? Anybody? Again, it's the same guy that raised his hand for high school, college. It's the same honest guy. I, anybody? That's me. My wife and I driving. We got the map pulled out. Peter, I think we're lost. Oh, we're not lost. I know exactly where I'm at. Really? And my wife is one of those. She's like, okay. Idiot. She will drive, right? <laughs> Five minutes later, do you know where we are? Yes, I know exactly where we are. Thank you very much. We're in a dark alley somewhere, right? Can't go out, can't go left, can't go right. Are we lost? Maybe. (laughs) Give me that map. Nobody is more lost than somebody who doesn't realize they're lost. You can't discover God, the real God, unless you're willing to admit that you're lost, man, and you're a fugitive. If you're not willing to go there this morning and saying, I'm lost, I'm a, I've run, I'm running today, Peter. You might be running for a while. The first step in discovering this God, this amazing God, is to admit that you and I are fugitives who've run. Church, desperation always precedes deliverance. You will not experience the deliverance of God unless you acknowledge how desperate you really are. Don't be like the fool who's in the water and drowning, rejecting the life preserver because he or she is unwilling to admit that they're drowning. Are you lost? Are you running? Are you lost? Are you running? I'm not just talking about the younger brother, Luke 15, I'm living. I'm talking about you, older brother types. Peter, I'm sitting here today, I'm doing all the right things, but my heart could not be further from the face of God than that drugged out prostitute. Matter of fact, I might be further. Admit that you're a fugitive. And we're going to discover this more. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. How does this story end? Because I'm going to do that and I'm going to go, how does the story end? Do you know how this story ends? So check this out. Do you want to actually... You know, you, know, you know this part from Feltboard Sunday School, those of you who went to school. The, the fish, blah, the fish spits him out, right? So we got his prayer in chapter 2. Jonah's prayer inside the fish in chapter He spits him out. So he finally goes to Nineveh very reluctantly, and he preaches like the most lame sermon. Dan, you'll love it because it lasted like 10 seconds, okay? He preaches, repent, and they repent. The entire city, the entire city repents. The whole city, sackcloth and ashes, and they repent. And in chapter 4, here's what we find in chapter 4. Here's what Noah, Noah. Here's what Jonah does, okay? Here's what Jonah does. By the way, I've been calling my son Noah, Jonah, and Jonah, Noah. Lack of sleep. Here's what we find in chapter 4. Look, check this out. Chapter 4 of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jonah was what? And we're faced with an incredibly profound theological question, which is, huh? (laughs) What? What are you mad about? What, what are you angry? It goes on. He lost his temper. This, by the way, is a message translation using Peterson. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily anger, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. <laughs> what? We're going to discover that deeply theological question in the next few weeks. What? But why such a ridiculous response? Why such a ridiculous response? Do you know why? This is where we're going to end. He says they don't deserve it. He is self-righteous to the core. Can can, can Can I talk to you? Like heart to heart, okay. This right here, and I'm wrapping this a couple minutes, this right here is the reason why many of you out there Christians have hit that wall spiritually and you're just tired, lethargic, and you're going, I don't know if I want to do this thing. This is the reason why some of you are not Christians 
it'll keep you from experiencing the gospel. This is the reason why, even though I preach on the gospel every day, every week, it doesn't sink into your heart. This is the reason why, this is the reason why Jonah ran, and this is the reason why you and I are not experiencing life transformation, experience of grace. We are, by nature, at our core, self-righteous. Now, ah, before you go, you're self-righteous for telling me I'm self-righteous. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, I am self-righteous. And before you go self-righteous and you think mean, arrogant, judgmental person, here's what self-righteous literally means. You are finding your righteousness in yourself. That's what self-righteousness means. What do I mean? Every single one of us, Paul says this. Please, pay attention. Give me, give me like two minutes. Every single one of us, Paul says, we live our lives, Romans chapter 1, to patch up our own righteousness. Every single one of us, we live our lives every day to patch up, to sow our own righteousness. That is, every single one of us has something in our lives that we look to and say, because of that, remember Rocky, 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 first one, the good one, remember Rocky, before he's fighting Apollo, he looks at the Adrian, he says, here's why I want to fight. Here's why I want to get in the ring with him. He says, so that I'll know that I'm not a bum. You and I have something in our lives that we look to and say, because of that, I'm not a bum. I'm somebody. I'm acceptable. I'm worth it. Every single one of us, you have it. Now check this out. Check this out. Every single one of us have that thing. That thing makes us self-righteous. Because it's that thing, check this out, that makes us look at other people and we go, I'm better than you. I'm better than, oh, please don't lie. Every single one of us, deep down inside, good religious moral people, every single one of us has something that we look at everybody. You know why? Because if we don't feel better than somebody, we can't live with ourselves. We can't. So we have something in our lives where we're looking at everybody and going, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, every single one. You're you're saying that right now about me. Listen. Listen. Self-righteousness. Looking at other people and saying, I'm superior to you. The only thing that could heal that is what? The gospel. Well, you know what Jonah's was? It was racism. The thought of those filthy, evil Ninevites repenting and experiencing God made him want to vomit. So he's looking at them going, I would rather have you. Why? He's looking at him, pedigree, his nationality. I am a Jew. I am a Hebrew. Remember how he said that in chapter 1? First thing, he says, I am a Hebrew. He looks down at everybody else. Every single one of you, it's your smart, your looks, your religious, your spiritual let me, let, 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 me, let me end here. Let me end here. Because this is, this, is, this is the thing that is going to keep us, I'm talking to you Christians, from experiencing our self-righteousness. Here's the thing. If there's a group of people on the face of this earth who should not be self-righteous, it's who? Say it. It's who? Christians. Because if you truly understand the gospel and you're self-righteous, you have no idea what the gospel is. Because the gospel says, even though we are more wicked and more defective than we dare believe, because of Christ, we are more accepted and more loved. But here's what we do. We Christians walk around and we judge other people and we actually think we're better than other people. Do you know why? Because we behave better. We're more moral. We're more devoted. Because we think that's what saves us. I'm more moral. I'm more devoted. I behave better. So here's what we do. We Christians walk around even though there's evidence to the contrary. We actually think we're better than other people. We're more devoted. We're more moral. We behave right. That's not the gospel. That is the enemy of the gospel. That is the enemy because the gospel says Jesus Christ saves. Saves who? Saves us. From what? Us and our inability to be devoted and our inability to be moral. Is that good news to anybody? Is that good news to anybody? Jesus Christ saves us from our inability to be moral, inability to devote as we should be. So here's what happens. When a Christian truly gets this, you look at a spiritual wretch and you don't say, pull yourself up, man. What the heck is wrong with you? You know what a gospel person says? He looks at a spiritual wretch and he says, check this out. If the gospel is that he reaches down to fugitives who have no chance, no shot at God unless God reaches down, well, I must look worse to God than he looks to me. Otherwise, he wouldn't have reached down and rescued me. And look what God did in my life. He could do the same for you. Do you look at the people around you that way? Do you look at the people around you with that kind of humility and brokenness? Do you look at spiritual wretches, the younger brothers around you, and you go, I must actually look worse than God, man. Because if I did it, would he have reached down? So here's the last point. 
The gospel is not just for non-Christians. The gospel is for Christians, man. That is the theme of Jonah. Now listen, here's what we're going to do. No music playing in the background. The first place to experiencing life transformation, if you're sick and tired of your Christian life as you know it, and you're going, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to do this thing. Maybe because you've never encountered the true God, and the way to encounter the true God is first and foremost to admit, I am running. I'm a fugitive. I'm going to ask you to stand if that's you this morning. Four people, five people. Hmm. Anybody else? Six, seven, eight, maybe? Okay. Nine. Anybody else? Anybody else? Now I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until everybody stood up. Remember the first step? If you can't even acknowledge this to people around you, how are you going to acknowledge to God, right? You think it's easier to acknowledge to God? It ain't. It's not. Anybody else? Now I'm talking to you too, Christian, child of God, church people. Come on. Anybody else? Anybody, first step, first step towards transformation. First step towards transformation. Anybody else? I'm going to literally wait until anybody that wants to, I'm not going to force it, that wants to, because I'm going to pray a prayer for me and you, for those of us that are runners, because I include myself. Anybody else this morning? Anybody else this morning? This is about you. If you can't acknowledge it, there's no taking step one. First step, acknowledging. Anybody else? Anybody else? Please don't stand if you don't mean it. Anybody else? Anybody else? For those of you that are standing up front, because it's always harder, right? Because you're going, am I the only one? Turn around. Turn around for a second. I want you to turn around for a second. Those are your brothers and sisters, okay? So you're not all covered, okay? All right, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. For those of you that are runners, for those of you that have run, for those of you that are running today, you're doing all the right things. You're Jonah. I'm Jonah. Close your eyes right now. Here's what we're going to do. We're all going to pray. Those of you that are sitting down too, you can pray too. And worship team, you guys come on up, Jillian. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer that is reflective of what my response would be. And if you just want to simply repeat my prayer, it's not in the repetition, but it's, it's in the content of what it means and you mean it, you pray that. If you want to just pray on your own, you can do that too. Okay? But I'm going to pray a prayer. And those of you that are standing, I thank you You encouraged me this morning. Believe it or not, this very simple and yet hard thing that you just did to stand in front of people to say, you know what? I am running, man. I am running. That's you. Stand stand where you are. God, I'm self-righteous. God, I'm self-righteous. I stand in front of these people this morning and I confess, God, that I am a self-righteous person. God, I have all kinds of thoughts that go through my mind on a daily, moment-by-moment basis that constantly compares myself to other people, constantly trying to gauge how I am, constantly wanting to say and think that I'm better. I am a self-righteous person. And I just pray this morning that you would forgive me. I just pray this morning, God, that you would forgive me of my sin of self-righteousness. God, I've run from you. I may look good on the outside, but God, internally, I am running, I am running, I am running. Because you are not enough for me. You are not all that I need. I am God of my life. I stand at the center of my life, God, and I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness of this cosmic idolatry. I ask for your forgiveness. And God, I need your help. We need your help. We stink at ruling our own life. We stink at being our own gods. We're just afraid to admit it, God. We're just afraid to acknowledge it, but we stink at it. We made a mess of things, God. But God, we thank you that we can bring the mess to you. All of it, all of it without shame. All of it without guilt. All of it, God, without fear. And say, God, here, I'm done. And I do that right now, God. I do that right now. My messed up, wrecked life that I made, I give it to you right now and say, God, you take it. I don't even know where to begin from now, but all I can do is, God, say, you take it. You take it. 
You take it. You take it. And before we close out in this final song, if the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about what your righteousness is, what it is that you're using, is it your religion? Is it your Christianity? Is it the fact that you're a good person? Is it your career? Is it your marriage? Is it that relationship? Is it your children? Is it success? Is it grades? Whatever that is, that is your righteousness. Take that and you give it to God. Take that and you give it to God. Say, I surrender it, God. I surrender it, God. I surrender it. myself set the tone for the rest of this sermon series. I'm going to ask Jillian and the rest of the worship team to kind of lead you guys through, just sort of, they're going to play background worship for you to respond to if you want to sing, for you to pray if you want to pray for the next five to ten minutes. 
what I want to encourage you to do. If you need to go, go. But how often is it that you are intentionally given some time during a day to just sit, kneel, stand quietly before God, before this moment passes, and make some concrete commitments to your God? So do that before you leave. If you need to go, that's totally cool. Do that before you go. And remember to continue to pray for people that you would want to invite as we continue to go on this journey. Let me pray for us. And then I'm going to give you this room, the sacred space to pray. God, as we go forth from this week, help us to know that you are an all-present God. That your presence goes with us. Your presence goes before us, behind us, beside us. And that is not just something to fear, but it is something to rejoice over, God. Be encouraged in. Find strength in. Help us to know that we do not journey alone, that you journey with us, God. And as we go forward from this place, help us to know that we are your instrument, your vessel, your kingdom person, representative wherever we are. Be with us. Be with us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Amen. For those of you that want to go, you are dismissed. Those of you that want to stick around and pray, take this time to do that.